Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. The Glad Tidings of God and the Mystery of the Gospel. By James Boyd. Life. In the Word of God there are two great principles, or lines, of truth that run throughout the dealings of God with men, right from his creation until the judgment of the great white throne. And they are the line of responsibility and the line of life. By the former is meant, the responsibility of the creature to maintain himself in the place of blessing in which he has been set by his maker, and that by the fulfillment of his obligations. And on these terms Adam was set in the very beginning of his history. This principle was represented in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree was reserved by God for himself, Adam was not to eat of it, every other tree was free for his use. Man was to remain in the state and circumstances in which an all-wise and beneficent creator had placed him, for they were absolutely perfect. He was just to remain as he was, rejoicing in the good things with which he was surrounded, and giving thanks to the giver of all good. He was not to think that by any act of his he could increase the wealth of blessing that had been so bountifully lavished upon him. A serious question, that of good and evil, was in the universe, how long before man came upon the scene we are not told, but Adam was to let it alone. What had he to do with it? Why mix himself up with a question, of the nature of which he knew nothing? His place was outside everything pertaining to it, and he had better remain there. True, he could easily open the door of access into that fearful arena, and, as far as that particular matter went, rival his maker, but at what a fearful cost. But the wily adversary hid from him the cost, and dangled before him the supposed gain. He grasped at divinity, and fell under death. But there was not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, there was also the tree of life. As long as man fulfilled the rightful obligations imposed upon him by his maker access to the tree of life was open to him, when he failed he was cut off from it. There was no second chance given to him. To have given him another trial would have been to admit the first trial to be insufficient. The cherubim and the flaming sword, placed to guard it against any attempt to reach it, left him to the ravages of disease, decay, and death. The law given to Israel raised this question afresh, and again we have, in the dispensation introduced by Moses, that which was represented by the two trees, responsibility and life. Let a man fulfill his responsibilities, and life is assured to him, but let him break one commandment, and his title to be preserved alive is gone forever. Therefore the law that was ordained to life, became an instrument of death. It confirmed the judgment that already lay upon man on account of sin. The question raised by the tree of responsibility must have a perfect answer before the tree of life can be reached. The fact that we have failed to fulfill our obligations cannot be ignored by the righteous judge. He cannot act towards us as though sin did not exist, or as though we had not sinned willfully and wickedly. Men will act without respect to righteousness and will force their way through many a legitimate barrier to reach the end they have in view, for they have little respect to moral rectitude. But one cannot expect the moral governor of the universe to act thus. The great principles of righteousness have had their origin in the attributes of his own being, and they are the principles that bind and give character to all his activities, and they cannot be sinned against with impunity. God may have long patience with a world of rebels against his authority such as this is, but it is unthinkable that he should continue its existence indefinitely, or that he should leave it without a distinct testimony regarding its end. Life in an unfettered and sinful condition cannot be immortalized. A deathless world of God-defying sinners would be a blot on the escutcheon of the King Eternal, and we may rest perfectly assured no such blot, nor any other shall be there. God will reach the end he has in view in the most perfect consistency with his own nature and character. No attribute of his being shall be damaged. And this is really the security and confidence of the believer in Jesus. 
what security or rest of heart could any intelligent creature have, were he to find his maker as indifferent to truth and righteousness as he knows himself and his fellows to be? The thought were blasphemy, and yet how common the thought is, that the affections of the creator are as fickle, faithless, fantastical, and lawless, as are the affections of the creature. The safety and the peace of mind possessed by the saint of God flow from the fact that not the smallest claim of a single divine attribute has, through the exercise of the mercy that has saved his soul, been ignored. Where the word of righteousness is understood the feet are planted upon a rock that is unshakable. The life derived from Adam, the life of flesh, cannot be continued. It must be brought to an end, on the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, Romans chapter 5 verse 12. As long as man lives in the flesh, so long shall he be dominated by sin, Romans chapter 8 verse 8, and because of this God is compelled to put an end to such a sinful existence. It is clear that such a state of existence could not be, by a righteous and beneficent creator, allowed to continue forever. But the judgment pronounced upon Adam on account of his transgression, and which came upon all his descendants, because all were sinners, does not seem to have included anything but the death of the body. What was to be the consequence of a life of rebellion against God does not seem to be taken in here. We have to come to other scriptures for that, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. And when that judgment has come, we read, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20 verse 15. Life according to God, life in which the soul lives to God, is only to be found in Christ, he is the true God, and eternal life, 1 John chapter 5 verse 20. No one can live to God in the life of Adam. It is a corrupt life, and in its nature hostile to God. To live to God man must have a new life, a life that Adam in his innocent condition did not possess any more than in his fallen state. The life that he had in his innocent state was as pure and perfect in the eyes of God as could be. But once fallen, there is no mending of it, nor can man be recovered for God in that life. Until the question of his responsibilities has been raised, and has had a perfect answer, living forever is an impossibility. I do not mean to convey the idea that the life of man as a responsible living being ceases to exist, but that the judgment of death lies upon him in his life of flesh and blood here on earth, and that he has never been able to give God a ransom for his soul, so that he might live forever, and his flesh not see corruption, Psalm chapter 49 verses 7 to 9. But death is not by any means annihilation. It is the breakup of the earthly structure, by means of which man has his practical existence down here, and where he lives his life of God-forgetfulness. His body goes to the dust, out of which it was formed, and his spirit to God who gave it. Thus his life of flesh and blood is ended. But the life lived by man in the flesh is moral death, for it is a career of practical separation from God. He is alive to sin, and to the things that belong to this world, but dead toward God, dead in trespasses and sins. His affections are set upon the things that minister to his carnal appetite, and he cares nothing for the word of God, nor for the companionship of his people. All this is moral death. There is no love to God in the natural heart, and where the soul loves God there and there only is life. Because God is love there is no possibility of living to him or of knowing him, apart from loving him. To live to him who is love, love must be begotten in the heart, and this can only be by the gospel, which sets forth the love of God to man, and when this is believed, the Holy Spirit is given, who sheds abroad in the believer's heart that love, so that we love him because he first loved us, but apart from this all is moral death. The separation that exists between man and God was brought in by sin. The love and the confidence that were natural to him in his innocent state were displaced by the fear and distrust that took possession of his heart in consequence of the transgression of which he was guilty. 
and that fear and distrust of his maker dominate and shape the lives of every one of his descendants. And it is not that wholesome and reverential fear that has its congenial habitation in the heart of every intelligent being who is in right relations with God. But it is that terror that is born of the sin of which his conscience tells him he is guilty, and which prevents him from looking at God in any other light than that of a merciless judge. And this is so wrought upon by his viperous enemy, the devil, that even the overtures of his creator's unfathomable grace are utterly disbelieved and refused. Two words describe the natural condition of fallen man, and they are dead and lost. Alive, fully alive, to this godless world, to its pleasures, to its pride, to its lust, to its vices, and to everything that will minister a momentary gratification to his insatiable desires. But dead to God by the enmity of his apostate condition, and by the darkness in which he has found his God-forsaken home, but a darkness that is love. Because he thinks it hides from view the deeds of which he feels he ought to be ashamed. And lost, because in him there is neither power nor desire for recovery. He can invent no remedy for his fallen condition. He is sin's servant, and his lusts like a whirlwind carry him away in the path of destruction. He can neither retrace his footsteps nor moderate the rapidity of his headlong career. Therefore he will banish the thought of God from his mind altogether, for every such thought only increases his misery. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The thought of God is hateful to the flesh. The gospel has no charm for the natural ear. The judgment to come is treated as a baseless priestly invention. God is a hard master, a compassionless tyrant, who has no respect for the work of his hands, that is, if he exists at all, which some men think may be very rightly questioned. Therefore the only thing to do is to act as though he did not exist. And by fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, make themselves as happy and as comfortable as they can in the land of the vagabond. The life of the last Adam is the only life in which a man can be made to live to God, and this life the believer in Jesus possesses. He is the living bread come down from heaven, to give life, not only to the Jewish nation, but to the world, and, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, John chapter 6 verse 51. By faith this bread is to be appropriated. His flesh is to be eaten, and his blood is to be drunk, a dead Christ is to be appropriated by faith. I am to claim that death as mine. That death is the judgment of all that I am as a child of Adam, and in the life of Christ, and in that life only, I live to God. I am quickened out of my death in sin by the communication of the life of the risen Saviour. I have parted company with my old sinful life, and am partaker of the life given to me by God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and this life is in his Son, 1 John chapter 5 verse 11. Nothing can be more important for us than to realize that we have this new eternal life, that it is our own proper life, that in that life we are in relationship with God. That it is the life in which we live to him, that it is the life that is in the Son, that it is stainless, incorruptible, deathless. The life by the possession of which we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 1 verse 4. It is ours by eternal counsel, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, by the gift of God, Romans chapter 6 verse 23, by his quickening power, John chapter 5 verse 25, in the witness of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, and through faith in the gospel, verily, verily. I say unto you, he that hears my word, and believes on him that sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life, John chapter 5 verse 24. The fact that God has given to us this eternal life, and that this life is in his Son, is supported by three mighty witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The water and the blood came out of the side of Christ when he hung dead upon the cross. The death of Christ has made a complete end of our sins. They exist no longer, and to this the blood bears witness. 
the death of the one who bore the judgment of them has put him away forever. The water bears witness that through that death we have moral purification, for in that death the man that committed the sins is in the judgment of God gone out of existence. The Spirit has come down to us from an ascended Christ, and is the witness to us that life is only in him. These three bear witness to the one blessed truth, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, 1 John chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son has not life. Our sins are gone, and our unclean nature also, in the judgment of the cross, and as born of God we are in new and eternal relationships with one another and with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Everything that was contrary to God in us and about us was brought under the judgment of the cross, and there made an end of. And therefore we have a right and title to view ourselves only as partakers of that new life and nature that is ours by the quickening power of God. Whatever we may actually find in ourselves that may be contrary to all this. The flesh in us is not mended, and we find it ever ready to assert itself, but it has been ended judicially. And when our Saviour comes and changes our bodies into the fashion of his own it will have actually passed away forever. Meantime we can rejoice with joy unspeakable that that precious stream of water and of blood, which from his wounded side so freely flowed, has put away our sins of scarlet dye, washed us from every stain, and brought us nigh.